just in my brain, I go, okay, uh, let's cut away all the all the fluff and all the chaff. The basic idea is good guy versus bad guy, good guy versus bad guy, uh, and then how do we build on that uh, by taking away? Howdy friends, Craig here. Another Insider's Insight as we talk to the designers from Mount Tiki Games. They've got a new card game out, actually combination card and board game called Unperfect Heroes Battle Lines. And uh, it um, it's clever. Um, I think what you're going to enjoy the most and what I enjoyed the most is really getting an insight of how you go from, hey, I've got kind of these characters and these ideas all the way out to we are going to put a fully fledged game out on Kickstarter. We talk about the different design decisions, how you learn to when to you know, make changes and when to stop and actually say we're done. Enjoy. Playing a tabletop strategy game allows you to unplug and test your skills against friends. Every week, Third Floor Wars delivers useful strategies, discussions, battle reports, and reviews to tabletop games like Malifaux. If you want to get better at the games you already play or discover the games other people are playing, you are in the right place. Craig and Ray welcome you to the third floor and the Tabletop Talk broadcast. Craig here on the third floor. There's a new game out on Kickstarter called Unperfect Heroes Battle Lines from Mount Tiki Games. Today, we're talking with two people involved in its design. My guests are Michael Matson and Bob Maffa. Now, our Malifaux players likely know Michael. He's a very active in the community, and Michael is the creative guy at Mount Tiki Games. He was heavily involved in creating and writing the rules. He's been gaming since the late 90s and working in the industry since 2009. So, Michael, welcome to the third floor. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Looking forward to uh, talking. <laughs> Me too, man. So uh, out of curiosity, what is the biggest thing people don't understand about working in the gaming industries for as long as you have? Uh, I think the biggest thing that people don't understand is just how many different choices there are to make in every aspect of working in the industry, right? Like whether you're making a game or you're selling games or you're promoting stuff, you got to decide, you know, what cream to put where and what choices to make in a game. The game's got a million choices going into game design alone. Yeah. Uh, that people just ignore. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit further when we're talking about battle lines. But, you know, it's it's staggering just how many little choices no one thinks about until it's, like, laid out in front of you on paper. So now people listening right now, Mike, are thinking to themselves, I've always, I, I've always wanted to design a game. I've always wanted to get into the gaming industry. They enjoy playing games. What is something that is... Because at some point, I would assume you were in the same spot, right? Where you're like, man, it would be great to be able to really get involved in this industry. And now that you are, what, are, what is something that um, you didn't realize? Something that's harder than you realize or that kind of sucks about it? Oh, we, I mean, we've all had the thought to make a game before. Uh, everybody's got that game in the back of their head. Right. Um, the thing that really sucks the most is that, uh, <laughs> that's an interesting question. The thing that I would say probably sucks the most is that you can't have every idea you want in one game. Oh, okay. Uh, at some points when you're sitting with a game design, like you might have a mechanic that you're just in love with and you want to make it work somehow, and it just doesn't work for yeah. whatever you're trying to make it work, and you got to shelve it for, you know, I, I never throw away an idea. 
I'll never just say outright it's not good, but I have a folder in my computer that's just ideas I've had that don't work for this project that might work on the next one or the next one or the next one or whatever. Yeah, I would imagine it would be very hard. I mean, and this is a cliche, but I'm going to use it anyway. Like, they're, they're your kids, right? And you you love each one of oh, them, yeah. and you want them all involved in learning to say, you know what, no, this this is not going to work, and that's got to be difficult to, to to trim. Oh, absolutely, it is. That, and also you get uh, very. I at least I do. I get self conscious about accidentally mimicking other games. Yeah. With certain things, and so you've got to uh, realize a couple of things when you go into making games and stuff that you know there's no original ideas that everybody's done something before it's making what you want to make to the best of your abilities that someone want to play yeah that's tough that's tough now my second guest is bob also known as aloha bob and he's kind of the man behind mount tiki games now his love his love of games brought him from being just a graphic designer into actually producing and creating games so bob welcome to the third floor hey how you doing i appreciate you having me so your path is a little bit interesting, Bob. Um, so kind of give me a little bit of a history. Uh, before you were involved at all in the gaming industry, what were you doing and what brought you to where you are now? This actually started a long time ago. Um, most recently, I have been a, a photographer and graphic design. That is what I have done professionally for the last 15 or 20 years. Um, I've had several photo studios, design studios, and constantly doing design work of some sort. But what kind of started this whole process was the fact that we had created this idea, my friends and I, 25 years ago about, oh, wow. all, these, about all these different characters. And we came up with this, um, this family of characters. And, and during the time that we were doing this, and we can talk about this kind of stuff later, but um, during this time that we were working with these different characters, we were creating lots and lots of fiction and we were writing stories. We were writing. Um, we had ideas for screenplays. We had um, <laughs> uh, we had done a, a web TV show. We had done newsletters and magazines. And there was a um, after about seven or eight years of creating this magazine, we finally culminated with this final issue, where we said, you know what? Let's just dump everything we have, every idea that we have had in the past or wanted to do. Let's just put it all in this big final issue and we came up with a with a magazine that was like 140 pages long wow previously everything was uh between four and maybe 20 pages sure so we just said let's throw every single piece of crap in here we can find well one of the uh one of the one of the things that we did in this magazine was we created a um an article called failed waple ventures Waple is the name of the family, uh, the Waple family. But we had we had a page that was called Failed Waple Ventures. And on this, we, it was like a one or two page spread where we had all these things listed of things that we had started at one point but never finished. Okay. And, and every single one of these was a thing that we really did start. We didn't really pad this at all. And one of them was um, a video game and an RPG game. There was actually an RPG that we had written a storyboard for. In, the, in one of these, it actually in this magazine, the issue. Well, about uh, two or three years ago, I was looking through this magazine just for old time's sake, and I came across that failed Waple Ventures article. I said, man, you know, there's we had so many good ideas here. And this about three years ago, my wife, son, and I started playing board games, and we thought, you know what? We have so many ideas and so many things we could do. 
why don't we see if we can make a board game based on this family of, you know, because we have all these ideas. Why not try to see if we can do something? And we started creating something that was going to be more of a, a one of those, um, the board game versions of, of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, more of like the Castle Ravenloft type of a right, game. Right, dungeon crawler type thing, yeah. And then uh, we we started doing that, you know, on my own. And then yada, 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 I ran into Michael and things kind of took a big change, which we can also talk about. So I'd be curious, Bob, how did, how did, how did you end up finding Michael? How did Michael find you? That... Is an interesting story. That's exactly where I just left off. <laughs> it is, yeah. <laughs> um, well, in this, in the original game that we were going to create, it was going to be a. Um, I wanted to do something with dice because you know everyone loves playing with dice. Yep. And my son was just getting into Dungeons and Dragons, and I wanted to create a game that had miniatures. Well, I had these. Um, I had actually had found an artist that I love. That it's a comedy game. Everything that. This based on this game is all comedy based. I found a great guy that was creating these fantastic images that were. He was he he was he lives in um, Turkey, I believe, but he was able to get the humor and and everything that we were doing just perfectly. Well, I took these images from him that he got basically in, inspiration from me and these real life people that play these real characters. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I took those things and I found some people online that would be able to create three D figures from my conceptual drawings and his cartoons. Sure. Well, then I went through and I had a, a 3D printer at the time. I printed these characters in 3D and say, you know, these are what the you know, figures are going to look like. Well, I went into uh, a couple local uh, game stores and I talked to one of the guys there saying, do you have anyone there that could paint paint these? So they look really, really good because, you know, I was putting the cart way before the horse here. And, <laughs> but I said, you know, because I've, I've been in promotion since, you know, forever, you sure. know, on the marketing side of it. And I said, you know, when I have this game, I want to make sure that these um, these figures look really, really, really good so I can use them for my, my promotional materials. Yep. And one of the guys there said, oh, I know the perfect guy. You need to talk to Michael. And he and I sat down and we talked um, for about 20 or 30 minutes that first day. And he told me about all the stuff that he does with games, about the rule, uh, especially with the rules and mechanics and all that stuff. And a lot of that, those things I had in my head of what I wanted to do. But then when I started talking to him, I realized, you know, he is going to know a lot more yeah. than I could ever possibly know. And what was really great was that, you know, I had these, these big ideas and he's really been able to go through and noodle everything and really figure out like this is going to work. This isn't going to work. I'll throw out a really stupid idea and he'll say, okay, well, I'm not going to shoot you down, but <laughs> here, are the, here are all the different things that you're going to have to consider. Right. And yeah, so that's how it was. I looked, I was looking for a painter and I found a guy who's like a genius when it comes to numbers and mechanics. So, so there's, there's two things there. One is uh, for those of you listening, um, you know, being a good painter gets work. It may not be painting work, but it gets you work. So that's it gets good. You something. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> but the second part of that, Bob, is is a little bit interesting. What you're talking about, um, you know, you walked into this with really so much of it fully formed, right? Because I mean, these are characters that you have fall, have built and fallen in love with for decades now. Mm-hmm. Um, you'd already started saying, you know, conceptually, this is kind of what I want the game to look like, feel like. I have some ideas. You know, how hard was it to run into somebody who? 
which I appreciate you acknowledge, you know, had, knew more about it than you did, right? But oh yeah, but without a doubt. How hard was it to run into somebody who said, you know what? I realize this has been your baby for 20 some odd years, but I'm thinking let's take a right turn and let's try this. Was that tough for you to kind of emotionally detach from some of this stuff? Well, yeah, for about three months, I kept putting uh, bombs in his mailbox and yeah, and putting poop under his. Uh, no, it, it, it actually you, you do have to, I think, have a um, an ego that is not too overblown. I know that there's a lot of people out there who are going to say, this is my idea. This is what the right. way it's going to be. And. But what's what's good about it, the way, at least the way that we work, is that he – well, for one thing, he gets the whole idea about this whole story. Just to, you know, just so you know, the, the very basic version of this whole thing, just because the humor behind it and the story behind it is what really kind of sets this whole thing up. Um, we had created the, this – basically a family that was based on the worst wrestler in history, Gunther okay. Von Wickel. And he was – he was horrible, but he spawned lots of different kids. And we were at the time, this is back in the mid nineties. Um, independent wrestling shows were very big. Sure. Um, we actually would, we created these characters. I played, um, Biff Waple, who was Gunther's oldest son, and he was a masked wrestler. And then there were also Biff had several brothers and they were also wrestlers, but none of them were good at all. One of them, hated wrestling and wanted to be a boxer. He felt like he had to do it, but he quit. Another one of them died. I mean, it's just all these different <laughs> <That's> things. <fails>. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but what happened with all these things is that when, we, when I, basically I said, I'm going to just start writing a little newsletter. We're going to sit, all of our friends are going to sit down. We're going to watch WrestleMania tonight on pay-per-view. I'm going to write a little newsletter. I'm going to make a little prediction sheet that said, you know, we, we can guess who's going to win. But then I'd write these little fake stories about, about these characters. Well, then other friends said, Hey, I want to be a character. I want to do this. And one of the guys decided, you know, he'll be a great manager. He'll be the right. manager or the brother's manager. Then another one said, I want to do something too. So we ended up with a whole gaggle of people. One of them, we had a chef. We have a mad scientist. You know, it's a wrestling family with a mad scientist and a narrator. You know, he, his job was to narrate the things we did. Um, a trainer, you know, all these different things. And this, it just kept expanding and expanding. Well, during, like I said, during the 90s, uh, re- independent wrestling was big. And you'd go to a gymnasium or a warehouse somewhere. and there'd Especially be- in the South. Oh yeah, exactly. And that's where we yeah. were. Well, we were in Atlanta, and that's where WCW was. Yeah, and so it, there was a lot of stuff around here, and we, um, as a matter of fact, Cactus Jack, um, the wrestler Cactus Jack, we actually interviewed him for his very last, right before he went into the WWF at the time, WWE <laughs> now. But the day before he started the WWE, um, we actually interviewed him. And that's in one of our magazines. Nice. And but anyway, we went to the, all these little local indie promotions, and we would start writing these articles about what they're doing. And the next week, they would come over. We would start handing out these little newsletters, and we'd also though include our fake fictional horrible wrestlers. Now people, we didn't at this time. We didn't really say they were horrible unless you read the magazine. Sure. But we would go up to somebody and. 
we you know, we'd say, hey, did you hear that um, the Waple Boys are going to be here? In, you know, in a few months. I said, really? No, I've heard of them, but yeah, man, they're really coming. <laughs> and, no, you didn't really hear, but we just made this up. You know, yeah, no idea, but. People were thinking that you know, this is all true stuff. So that fed us, you know, thinking, you know, maybe we can really do more with this. And it just kind of grew and grew from there. What's what's funny about that for me, Bob, is that, um, you know, so many people listening right now, I mean, me being me included, I mean, you know, when I was in, in the 80s and 90s, I had all kinds of crazy ideas, all kinds of characters that I'd created and stuff that I've done, whether it be through RPGs or just me and my buddies, you know, hanging out by the creek and talking talking about stuff. It's really neat that you have, you know, that not only did you hold on to that stuff, but you developed it over time. And it's also neat the fact that you had, because you had published it, you had left yourself a relic, right? That you had gone back and discovered, which I think is really interesting where the past Bob wrote a love letter to the current Bob and said, hey, don't, you know, don't forget about this game. And Bob, you talk about, you know, everything that we've talked about so far about these characters is it in a, in a wrestling thing, but the game is not a wrestling game. So can we talk a little bit like thematically, what is, what, what is the game about? Well, yeah, you're right. It is not at all a wrestling game. And that's one of the things that we really had to try to get people be, be get out of uh, people's minds was that it's not a wrestling game, but the main character is a wrestler. Right. Um, well, the game actually really changed a lot during the, um, the course of everything. When I first talked to Michael, uh, as he'll remember, and like I mentioned, it was going to be more of a, a Dungeons and Dragons thing where you're yep. exploring. Um, there were going to be roaming PCs, NPCs. You're going to be exploring different places, and you're you're these unperfect, quote unquote, heroes uh, who think that they have these special abilities, but they really don't. They don't really know better, but they are trying to help people out. Right. And, when I when I first came to Michael, you know, he actually got the whole thing, and he said, "This is hilarious. I love the idea, and we can do this and this and this and this." And it just really clicked. Well, what happened was after he and I were working a lot on these rules, and you had asked about ego, and or or I mentioned ego. Yeah. Um, the good thing is that he did not really try to step on any of that that I had, and I didn't really have to. Um, really quell any of the things that I wanted to do based, based on the idea part um, because it all worked. What I really had to do was listen to his advice and realize mechanically, these are the things that we're going to have to scale back or, you know, we can't use this. We can't do that. And, um, but originally it was going to be a, like I said, the, the RPG game. Well, not many people, you know, we had a fan base of maybe seven people, and, you know, 12 of those seven were us, the real people. Right. right. And, well, the, um, you know, and I said, okay, if we do this game, that how I want to do it, we're going to have to sell it to, you know, for like $100. And it's... It was a big game. Yeah. And no one was going to pay $100 on, on something that was... It was not even in a genre that anyone was used to. If we made the same kind of a game using fantasy figures and or like vampires and dwarves and all that stuff... It would probably do it, but, you know, a waitress instead of a paladin, you know, 
people weren't going to do that. So no, and I, I can tell you as somebody who follows Kickstarter and board games on Kickstarter all the time, Bob, I have seen so many failed games come through where uh, God bless the people that are behind it. They have, you know, they have big dreams and they've spent a decent amount of cash to get the renders done on the minis and so on and so forth, but they didn't do their homework and they didn't, they, they, they took too big of a leap. Um, so that's good advice, Bob, for you to say, you know what? It, um, maybe this isn't what we supposed, what we're supposed to do. So where did it end up going? Um, so if it's not about wrestling, what's the game about? Well, we basically said, you know, how can we take these same kind of a co- same kind of concepts, same characters, whittle down all the extra expenses and make it into something fun, fast, and inexpensive, something that's affordable for people to buy that may say, you know what, this is actually fun, it's a funny universe, and then once they start playing it, maybe then we can look back and, and do the, the full-fledged RPG in the future. So that's what we said, so let's just pair it back. And what we came along with was, all right, we think these people have powers. Well, how do they get these powers? And it's... It is called Unperfect Heroes Battle Lines, and the tagline is that you are battling to the front of a line. Yeah, let me let me step in here. We we took the original mechanics from the big board game, and we whittled them down. We thought, okay, is there a way we can make this a quick skirmishy kind of interaction? And so we thought of Battle Lines. Uh, what Battle Lines is is it's a game uh, where the Waples have discovered their uh, magic superpower of being able to cut in line. And so they're trying to use that to the best of their abilities to get to the front of uh, very popular lines, which you don't have to provide, but we provide for you. That are things like the porta potty line at the uh, chili cook-off, the uh, all-you-can-eat buffet line, the escaping from a space station because it's about to explode. Anything you can shove and uh, get your way out of. But uh, we took we took the mechanics and whatnot from the original big game, and we whittled them down, and we cut them down, and we cut them down, and we cut them down until we had something quick and playable. Uh, to put on a board as is. So I watched your guys' intro video and I've been reading up a little bit um, on it. And uh, I got to tell you, it's very rare that I come across something that seems anything close to original and relatable. And, you know, and Michael, I'm going to I'm going to build off what you said, but we all know what it's like to stand in a long line. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I thought it was really I mean, and I know nothing about these characters yet, but I thought it was very interesting to take something that we've all done before, which is standing in a long queue and, and making it a game. And the fact that when you also boil down so many game mechanics, really, that's what so many games are, is getting to the front of a line. And I thought it was very interesting that you guys literally took it as a actual line into, you know, the all, all you can eat buffet. So, Michael, let's talk a little bit now off a of theme and talk more mechanics. So stylistically, what kind of game is this? We know it's not a uh, zombie side type game. So what kind of game is it? Uh, so the basic idea is that this is a gotcha style game. It's a quick to play little, um, I've got a thing and then your opponent's going to respond with a thing and then I'm going to respond with a thing until we've done the set amount of things the game will allow, which is in the context of this game, uh, recruiting people in the line to help you cut in front of the line or to help you beat up the guy in front of you or to bribe them or to even have yourself chicken out to then be able to sneak past him. You know what I mean? Right. There's a, uh, the idea is it's a gotcha game uh, combining both board games and card gaming elements for a more controlled variance than you would have with your average dice game. So, uh, so let's talk about like mechanically. So uh, we have cards, right? There's 
cards involved, and it's not just cards that tell you the rules. It's cards that you actually play. And that's uh, correct. What, what else is involved? Is there dice? Is there a board? There is actually no dice, uh, okay. as you see with the tagline for the first expand or the first core box, which is no dice. Um, there's a board. You've got standees. Well, that funny thing is that originally it did involve dice, and we actually we were getting to the point where. God, you know, no one's able to do anything because we were we had all these complicated combos we were trying to do, and we said, you know what? Let's take the dice out. Let's do a card based, and then you know, Michael had to kind of go through and reconfigure everything to figure out how we're going to go from dice to cards. So, so yeah, the, ironically, the first um, uh, the set of cards that come with the game is called No Dice. And so yeah, we've got the board itself, which is a a line, which instead of like a normal board where you've got squares to go in a bunch of different areas, it's just straightforward. You're going to the front of the line. Right. Uh, and then you've got standees representing your character and all the opponent's characters. Um, then you've got the deck of cards, which are representing other people in the line, not you. Got it. And so there's you who is you in the line, which is a person in the deck. Uh, but then everybody else is somebody that you are uh, recruiting basically to help you uh, go against your opponent. You've got cutter cards, which are the heroes that you play during your own turn to help you cut past the line. You've got target cards, which are the opponents playing to stop you, uh, to you know try and shove you backwards in line. And then you've got the random crap cards, which is just any sort of weird stuff that can happen along the way to mitigate one way or the other the statistics that you use. So we're going to deep uh, dig a little bit deeper into some of the gameplay, Michael. But before we do, I'd like to get an idea of, of, of context. Um, so a lot of the listeners um, have played a lot of games. Is there anything that uh, that they might go, yeah, it's kind of like this, it's kind of like that? Um, what are some things that might be familiar about Battle Lines? So right off the bat, I have to give a big shout out to games like Apples to Apples just for the humor aspect. Just putting it aside, this is a game we tried to be funny with. That being said, it's very similar to games like um, uh, there's talisman aspects, there's Kings of Tokyo aspects where you're combining board and card to do things that uh, I mentioned variants a little bit ago. The card aspect is there to be a more controlled variance than just dice right. to give you a more interactive experience, but still have that aspect of chance. Uh, and then uh, – it also draws a lot of inspiration from classic board games, Shoots and Ladders, uh, Sorry, Stratega, or not Stratega, but like Sorry, uh, any sort of game where there's you're getting game from of one life, point to stuff one like point. that. Yeah, yeah. Because yep. a lot of the classic games from the you know 70s and 80s are games that can all be boiled down to I have to get from point A to point B, and stuff can happen along the way. Yep. And so we you basically modernize that and put it into a nice compact form. And it also sounds like you did some mitigation on the randomness, right? So you you were struggling with the dice aspect and the fact that Bob mentioned, you know, it was preventing things from do preventing things from happening, which is fun. Um, and bringing in the cards still allowed a random number generator, but allowed a little bit more control. Bob, did you have anything to add? Yeah, uh, one of the things that you forgot that it takes a lot of from is actually poker. Um, Something that we've heard from a lot of people that it really is surprisingly strategic. Um, it's not, you know, a lot of games, you basically have two cards and you would say, okay, like if you're playing war, let's say I have a nine. Oh, you have a five. Okay. I win the end of turn. Well, we actually have a lot, a lot of strategy built into this seemingly very basic game because, um, we have, you know, it's, it's you're not just saying, okay, I attack with, this is my attack. This is your offense. I win. There's actually something where if you attack with somebody using, like, let's say, an attack, like you're going to fight, 
Well, then I would then be able to, if I won that fight, I would then be able to move my character forward a certain number right. of spaces that's listed on, on the cutter card. However, I could say, you know what? I'm going to bribe, and I would actually use a second set of stats, my bribe score versus the player's bribe score. And if I won that, I would move forward the number on the target's Got deck. It. So that right there gives you two different options of, okay, I may say, well, I move five if I win in a fight, but I only move two if I, if I win a bribe. And then another option is, well, you know, I'm just going to chicken out. I'm just going to procrastinate, and I'm going to have someone else just cut in front of the target, the, in, the target. And if he played one card, he actually moves back one space. If he played two cards, he moves back two spaces. So you really, really do have to think about what you're going to do in this game. It is really more than just, you know, here's my score, move forward. It sounds like we've got some really nice uh, key decision points, which is good. And, and, and it also sounds like about multiple paths. So, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to take a quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to focus more a little bit on the gameplay. So we're going to get a little bit more of the nitty gritty. Um, for those of you hardcore gamers that are listening right here, we're going to kind of get a feel of how this game plays out. Um, so we'll be right back. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. So I know a lot of the gamers that are listening right now are really anxious because we've kind of teased it a little bit and talked a little bit about it. So, Mike or Michael, what I want to do is talk a little bit. Um, let's start basic and we'll build off from there. So from a gameplay perspective, um, how many people can play the game? Uh, it's meant for two and up, ideally around five to six people uh, at most. But you can play as many people as you've got cards. And the more uh, people who have the game, you can all shuffle your decks together. And there's all in the rules to be able to play as many as you want. But two and up is. So what's the sweet spots? Because every game has one, right? So every game has, well, you know, if I had two more players, it's a little bit of a better game or with one less player. So, so in your mind, is there is there a sweet spot? I think the sweet spot's four people. Uh, in testing, that tended to be four to four to six people was the 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 everybody's doing something constantly, and we're all having a laugh, and there's jokes going around, and it's, it's meant to be a social game. Get together with the buddies, grab a drink, and play a quick board game. Gotcha. And obviously, and we've talked about it because thematically it fits perfectly. The object of the game is to get to the head of the line, right? To get to the front Correct. of the queue. Um, how long does a four player game usually take? A four-player game, if everybody knows what they're doing and everybody's you know, played a couple of times, you're looking to play 30 to 40 minutes tops. Oh, that's nice. Okay. It's so a nice, quick game. You're you're only moving each board's only got about 15 to 16 spaces, and you're moving, hopefully, two to three to four per turn. So, you know, on an ideal game, you're done in 
five or six turns, you could get through everybody 40 minutes. Yeah, that's nice. What I love about that game time, um, and it's something I've become more sensitive to, is my my available time for gaming gets smaller and smaller. Oh, I feel um, that. <laughs> it's really nice to be able to either, A, have what I always used to call in my game nights my opener game, which is everybody's kind of shuffling in. Here, let's, get a, let's do a quick game of this. Then we'll go play the two-hour game, the three-hour game. Yeah. Um, or to have a game that we can say, you know, we're going to play this all night. We're going to get four or five, six, six of these games in in a couple hours. And that's nice. I, w- I wanted to say that what's funny is you can tell the difference between Michael and you being gamers, whereas me, who is a very, very casual gamer, when he said 40 minutes you know, and you're saying, oh, that's a great time. I'm thinking, oh, my God, 40 minutes. I wanted to get done in like 10 minutes. <laughs> and that's what we were actually trying to, I wanted to do was make something where, you know, if you are playing with two, with two people, you can literally be done in, in five to six minutes. Sure. You know, if you get the right things, when you have more people, what happens is you, you stand on people's basically you, when you get in their spot, you have to push everyone behind. Cause like when you get in front of a line, if someone gets in front, everyone else has to move back a space. Yeah, you can't stand in the same place. And when you have when you have a lot of people, that's that's what really takes a lot of the time is that you keep getting and stepping on people's spaces and then pushing everyone back. It's almost like a little caterpillar movement. But with with two or three people, though, it can go a lot faster. Right, and and when we get in talking about design, which we'll do in another segment, um, you know that that's that's a that's a tough balance too as you're going through that process because. What you're talking about, Bob, is extremely attractive, which is a fast-paced game that only takes 5, 10, 15 minutes to play. What you always lose in that scenario is you lose um, any type of depth, right? So if it's a completely random game, yeah. I mean, we can make the game as short or as long as we want. We're all just throwing dice, and whoever you know, happened to get lucky that one time is going to be fine off. But if there's actual actual player agency where the players are making meaningful decisions... That's going to add to the game time and, and ultimately, for me at least, make it a better game. Um, I mean, uh, one of my favorite games that I love to play is a game called Shutbox, which has no strategy whatsoever. You throw dice and you flip down a little thing and it's fun, right? But thats I don't look forward to playing the game. It's just something I'll do. But for a game that I look forward to, that I think about, I'm going to want that, you know, that level of agency. So, Mike, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, the three different fight stats and the fact that there's kind of three different ways to to uh, engage with the other players and the uh, other um, cards that are coming at you on there. Um, There's one just simple win condition. I'd like to get a better understanding, though, of kind of path to the victory. Right. So is there only one way to win this game or can you come at this game a couple different ways and still potentially win it? Just uh, just like the classic board games that we tried to initially draw our uh, inspiration off of, there is one way to win the game. Get to the end of the line. Right. There's no lose condition. There's no um, other than not getting to the end of the line. There's not like a the deck ran out of cards or you rolled snake eyes five turns in a row or Abraham Lincoln's ghost came back and told you that going to the skeleton army. There's nothing, you know, outrageously just going to make you lose except for not getting to the end of the line. Right. Um, and so on that on that thought, though, there is, uh, even though it is one simple objective, uh, we tried to put as much interesting ways to walk that path as possible. Um, because each each of the characters that you play in the game uh, have got different things they do. So each of your turns, even though you are playing, you know, targets versus or 
yeah, cutters versus targets, and then playing random crap on top of them. They're all doing different things, and certain of them pair together in other ways, and and draw off each other's strengths. And there's, I mean that in an actual mechanical sense, and that if you play certain ones together, they get more abilities or they get more power. So there's combos. Yeah, there's combos and cards that work together, and um, the random crap is also a pretty big aspect. I know I'm saying that. It's actually, the cards are called random crap cards. I'm not (laughs) being derogatory towards the card. (laughs) So I'd be curious, Bob, um, you know, Michael having the actual mechanics background um, and the game design background, you coming at it from really, you know, it's your idea, but you're also, you know, your classic casual gamer, somebody who's relatively new to gaming, who's played a couple games. What did you, did you find the game approachable yeah, as far as its final form? Or did you find it intimidating? Because a lot of times we can um, we can put together a game that gamers, quote unquote, capital G gamers will like, but it, it's not approachable. Um, so what have you found, Bob, as far as people that maybe not be gamers? Well, it's actually funny that you say that because, um, you know, I had mentioned that I was a, uh, a marketer and a graphic designer for a long time. And a lot of times I came up to a, a client that would say, you know, a, a person's got to be an idiot to not to know what we do. And I say, I look at your website. I don't have a clue what you do. Yeah. I said, the reason is, is because you made the product. You know what it is. I don't. And same with Michael, you know, Michael is, he knows all the stuff about games, whereas I, like I said, am, am relatively new. Well, that, it really becomes a great pair off because he'll look at something and he'll say, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I'll look at him like with these things in my eyes saying, I have no idea what you're talking about. And then we'll come on, come into some kind of a compromise and I'll say, oh, okay, okay that, that makes sense. Like one of the things is originally the, um, well, not originally. After the, after we got rid of the dice, we um, we went to a numbering system with the combat, and we were going to have combat ranging from one to ten. And then we, we, I was looking at it and thinking, okay, let's say that someone puts down a seven, a nine, and a four on the fir- for the attack, and then they put down a two and a six, and, a, and I said, that's a lot of math right there. You know, <laughs> you know, here I am thinking, you know, okay. It, you have to add all these numbers and it comes up to 13. Jeez. And he's looking at the thing. But you talk about math is good. Everyone loves, you know, people can do these with no problem. Sure. Numbers are. So we come at it from a totally different way. And one way that we actually compromised on that is said, well, what if we go ahead and take that 10 and move it down to five? Comes up with the same thing, just easier to add. And right. it's um. so. So my experience coming from a, as a, from a casual thing Based on and, and and paired that with with his, it actually makes a good combo because if he'll come up with something that I think is just you know, yeah, I said okay, this game is supposed to be someone for casual. I think it's a yeah. little, little too much. We need to dumb it down for someone like me. But then you know there are other games that we have in the process that are going well, to be more my style. Yeah, they're they're right. Yeah, you know, like there are several games that we have. Like I said, this is this is the the intro game and eventually we're going to have that larger D&D version. That's going to be a lot more statistically complicated. complicated. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, intricate, right? Intricate. Yeah, intricate. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely get what you're saying. Uh, so uh, Michael, in your mind, um, you know, one of the big things is is um, one of the big things for me is key decision points, right? It's part of the reason that I love Malifaux. It's part of the reason you love Malifaux. Um, 
talk to me about some of what you consider the key decision points in battle lines. So in, in battle lines, your key decision points are how you're going to uh, sculpt your hand of cards because you do have a set hand of cards that you are playing from and replenishing every turn to get new options. Uh, and your decision points are how you're going to use each of those cards because each of those cards by themselves in a, in a, in a, in a, in a vanilla sense can be used one of three ways, uh, attacking, uh, bribing or running away, but then in combination with each other. And so the main, the main decisions you're trying to make are what cards will I be keeping the sculpting hand? Like we talk in Malifaux where you've got, you know, uh, I'll discard the black Joker at the beginning of the turn. So I have to deal with it for the rest of the turn or I'll yeah. hang on to it for the whole game. Like I'm prone to do, uh, in this game, I might go, Ooh, I've got a rocket launcher, which is one of our random crap cards. I got, I got to save that until I really need to win a fight. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm, you know, I'm making that decision to keep it in hand. And then I've got, um, there's not much left to, to true random chance, but there's, you know, uh, not a whole not as many decisions to make as I would like uh, in an ideal game for me. But then again, uh, as Bob pointed out, and it's a really useful tool for people designing games is to have a Bob, you know, to go, I have this really cool idea that I want to do. Do you understand what I'm talking about? Nope. All right. We're going to figure it out until you do. Yeah, that's (laughs) cool. That's cool. So guys, what we're going to do, we're going to take another break. When we get back from this break, I want to get more into the design process because it's something that I very, uh, you know, whenever I have designers on the show, I really like to understand uh, what happens behind the curtain and what that process looks like. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, Craig here. Nothing makes Malifaux easier than having the right tools. Here at the third floor, we love all the licensed Malifaux goodies from Custom Meeple. Not only are they helping support this podcast, they sell custom-made weird licensed tokens and terrain. They sell it all. Crew boxes, terrain, markers, tokens, and even a 3x3 full Malifaux board. Custom Meeple sells a complete M3E token set covering every marker and token you need to play. Custom Meeple are the source for the official accessories for Malifaux. Everything is designed by hand and authorized by Weird Games. Check them out at custommeeple.com, that's with one M, or follow the link in the show notes. Up your Malifaux game and be sure to tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. If you use the promo code third floor friend, all one word, T H I R D F L O O R F R I E N D, you'll get a 5% discount and help support the podcast. It's valid on everything except retail products and playmats. So the main reason I like to have uh, designers on the show is um, I personally am very fascinated by that process. I have played a ton of games and I've played the simplest of board games and card games to some of the more intricate um, games out there that can take days to play. And you know, when you play a game and you play a lot of games, you get an appreciation for the final product. But being in uh, production in a whole nother world and not gaming, I also know that it starts in one place and the final product is is a long, arduous process of a lot of adding and cutting and, and tough decisions. And I, I like to understand that. And Michael, it sounds like you had a pretty interesting scenario here. We, you had somebody approach you um, with Aloha Bob, and you know Bob says, "Look, these are characters that I've been married to for decades. These are things that I have been developing, you know, printing magazines about for crying out loud for a long time." 
And he also had kind of a large concept of that dungeon crawler with the miniatures and everything, which is initially how you got connected as a painter. But now we're talking about a game that's coming out on Kickstarter that's a card game that keeps score on a board. So there's that cardboard combo that we see a lot of, which is a very can be a very nice combination. How did we get from A to B? So I, I, if you can just and obviously, uh, you know, don't tell me everything, but it, it, like how did give me the shortcut of how you got where you are now from where you started? I mean, that that's a hell of a journey. It, it is. And it's actually it's a multi-year journey and we won't go through obviously every day, but it, so it starts off, you know, Bob comes into the game store. I'm hanging out, just playing games with my friends. You know, i started with magic, the gathering and other I'm miniature games and Malifaux and all those games. And I'm playing, hanging out and this, you know, this guy comes up to me, Hey, I want you to paint some miniatures. Uh, they're for a game I'm working on. Oh, cool. I, I work on games too. What do you got? We started this conversation. He shows me this big idea and it's just this, 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 this overarching, like, um, uh, 80s snowboard style movie idea about saving the you know snowboard club and getting fifty dollars to bribe the bad guy to not tear it down or you know concept wise and you know we've joked about that a little but bit that, but that li- was the literal original concept that was the, the actual fun fact um, and so he brings me this thing and it's got like a board with different you can go into buildings and there's different panels for the buildings that have spaces in them and you can do stuff and you can I won't go into crazy detail obviously but he shows me this thing and i'm like whoo okay <laughs> that's um, a lot <laughs> that's a lot uh, how does this work and he shows me a rules set that is and i'm gonna not be offensive and say unpolished sure um it was a very first draft rule set which every rule set when you are working on games starts at a point that is just unrecognizable yep from there i decided i said okay it's very obviously important to you know Bob to keep the characters. It's 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 these characters' story. So how can I best tell this story in as concise a package as possible, trying to keep to the theme? And so, you know, the initial theme of just in my brain, I go, okay, uh, let's cut away all the all the fluff and all the chaff. The basic idea is good guy versus bad guy, good guy versus bad guy. Uh, and then how do we build on that uh, by taking away? And right. so the first thing we did was we took away the big board and we said, okay, let's, let's condense things down to like one little, I think we had like a nine by nine board at one point, like a nine squares by nine squares. And we're like, let's try just this and maybe like panels of these. And then we cut that down even further by going, okay, well, what if we just kept the characters and kept them to like one little scenario of what the big game would have been. And then we thought, well, okay, how can we, make that one scenario interesting to play and make me invested in this scenario. And so then, you know, me and Bob had the conversation and this was probably a year into it, by the way, when we had the conversation of what if we just gave all these cool characters, one really funny scenario to have to do. Uh, And that was, I think when we started getting the idea of them doing, I think that might've been when we came up with the idea of them, they're standing in line. Okay, how can we make that interesting? Yeah. And so then then it comes down to finding the mechanics that makes that theme work with the characters the most um, structurally sound way possible. And I'm not saying the easiest way possible. Right. Because the easiest way possible is you roll some dice and you're done. Uh, and that's all maximum variance and nobody has fun except for people who like rolling dice. And yep. 
Nothing wrong if you are yeah, playing play Farkle. Warhammer. Yeah, Warhammer, <laughs> Farkle. There's, there's a billion games like them. But if you want a more controlled game, uh, you, uh, the, the, the game with the least variance that exists is chess. Yes. Uh, where you know exactly how every piece moves and there's nothing random that can happen. There's no surprises. It's just what is laid in front of you. And so finding that sweet spot between you know, randomly flailing dice at a wall and between chess is we kind of landed on, okay, let's take the chess, let's take the dice out of and do cards. Let's do uh, the hand size change 20 times. I'm sure. Uh, in testing and the, the, the way the characters moved changed and then the way their abilities work changed a million times. Uh, and I would come to Bob and say, okay, well, here's what I'm trying right now. What do you think? And he would tell me, you know, oh, I like the way this works. I don't like the way this works. Well, he's a great sounding board in that scenario, isn't he? Because because uh, he's not neck deep in it the way you were. Um, so I'm curious, Bob, and this is going to sound like a silly question, but it's I think it's an interesting question for people listening. Like, how do you prototype and go through all these different ideas? So, you know, Michael's coming up with this idea. He's cutting that. He's adding this. He's, you know, he's, he's boiling things down. In order for you to be make any decision about that process as, as, as being a partner in this process, like, did you guys just keep creating, like, just print and play prototypes and you play it out a few times to test it out. Like what is that process like, Bob? Well, that is my bread and butter pretty much. Um, that's, that's the thing that I've been doing for years and years and years. And a lot of times the way that I work and I know a lot of people will say you work like an idiot. Um, but what I'll do is I'll actually come up with an idea in my head and I'll just make it and I'll do it. And then I'll come to people and say, what do you think? For me, I've always kind of, I think, worked it a little backwards. Like, you know, I said I would start out um, with a big idea and then make changes from there. But I think it's, but I'm able to work quickly. Sure. And when you're doing the kind of rapid fire, like, and I'm talking about making, you know, the hand change 20 times, I'm not going to go to Bob with every single time I change one little aspect because I'm lucky enough to have a very uh, willing test pool of people who are willing to, you know, sit down and beta alpha test an idea. That was going to be my next question, Michael, is, I mean, when you get, when you get a a new idea, when, when you say, when you say to yourself, you know what, maybe instead of having eight cards in the hand, it's better off at five. um, You, you, you know, you can either make that decision sitting there by yourself, or it sounds like you did have, you did have, you know, some, some soundboards to, to, to test that off of. I can say one of my main tools that I used, other than the lens of Bob, um, which was a very good good tool for bringing things to the casual gamer's level, is the fact that um, I had a very readily available group of testers. Um, and testing is invaluable when you're making games. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. The, you can't test enough. Yeah. Um, and I, will, I would take and go, okay, well... I can't decide whether I want a the hand to be five cards, six cards, or seven cards. And so I would go to my little group of three or four people, and I would say, okay, I need you guys to do me a favor. Let's play five games, full games, of five hand, of five cards per hand, five full games of six cards per hand, five cool games of seven cards per hand, and just see how it works. And unlike when you're just sitting there shooting ideas off of each other, uh, which is a good thing to do, um, when you're actually just sitting and playing it, we'd get halfway through, you know, game two and somebody'd be like, This sucks. And so we'd be like, Okay, scrap that one. We're done with that idea. You know what I mean? Yeah. And by done I obviously mean shelved. Sure. Um, again, never throw away ideas. If 
if if people listening come away with one good piece of advice from me, it's don't ever throw away ideas. Just get them out of the game. Yeah. Uh, there, there's no such thing as a bad idea. It's just working to be applied. Yep. Uh, but yeah, it's it's the the soundboard and the testers is really where I can say we did the most or was the most useful. Yeah, yeah. It um, it, it's interesting to me too. So like, so how long do you put a, an idea through its through its paces, Michael? So you, you mentioned what you, you you said the card hands going up and down and things like that. You know that's that sounds like a, a tweak and is it's pretty immediate. Um, so I'm going to rephrase this. What is the idea that lasted the longest that did not end up in the final product? Ooh, that's a that's a really interesting question. I would have to say the idea that lasted the longest that did not make it into the final product would probably be, I don't know, we had the dice in there for a long time. Dice was a key part of the game for quite a while until we finally just turned to cards. Once, other than dice which was the game until we cut it. And then we just started with purely cards. Once we got to the card part, I would say that, Oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to stall this. Uh, There's just so many, so many things that have gone in and out and in and out and in and out. I would probably say uh, the ability to, and this was a very subtle thing that I ended up dropping in favor of putting into a different game more heavily that we're working on Um, the ability to remove cards from the game. Interesting. Probably, and it's it it, it 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 didn't get fully removed, but it did go way way down from its initial. You so, know what I'm saying? So, so yeah, I do. So it was a part of the game for a good bit of time through lots of testings and a lot of changes. It had survived. It survived. Why did it finally get cut? It finally got cut because I knew, I wanted to focus us more on the characters and you know uh, a lot of this and a lot of this cutting actually came on my end before i even showed stuff to bob because uh, i would go we would talk about like game mechanics and stuff like pure like uh how does this ability work or how does this uh cards of hand work or how does yada yada work but i had you know what each card does and that mechanic just I didn't want to cut anybody ever. I didn't want to go, okay, well, Biff is no longer in the deck to be played with because right. Biff's an important character. Yeah. You know, uh, even the bad guys like, uh, you know, the, uh, I'm blanking, uh, oldie moldy is one of the bad guys that I love. Um, uh, polite old nun in a bathing suit. She's, um, you have to look at the card art for that one. She, uh, I don't want to cut her from the deck, but at the same time, this mechanic, is a mechanic that's cool to mitigate not being able to use those cards again. And so I ended up shelving it to be used in another project that we're working on, which we'll talk about later. But gotcha. uh, that one was probably the longest lived. Actually, you know, what, now that you mentioned um, Oldie Moldy, that could have actually also been one of the answers because originally that card, that bad guy, was going to be an, um, an old nun in a bikini. No, an old nun in spring break. Yeah. And it was, an, it, was an, it was a lady wearing a habit and a black... Uh, bathing suit, um, swinging her her ruler, and that was in the game for a long time. And eventually, we said, you know, maybe we should cut that, and and we just turned her into an old lady in a bikini. <laughs> you took the Catholic aspect out of it. Yeah, we, it's like you know, a little bit. Might be pushing it a little bit. <laughs> um, so here's another uh, question um, that I have for you. Um, and and I'll, I'll give a little bit of a lead up to kind of give you context. So for uh, 
several years all throughout college, I, I was a bartender. That's how that's how I paid for college. Um, and I bartended a lot and um, learned two things. One, um, it took it was hard to be a good bartender, but it was something something you could be proud of. So I, I was actually very proud of myself for being a good bartender. And it, and it was harder than people think it was. Oh, yeah. But I can imagine. It was also not as hard as a lot of people think it was. <laughs> so now that I haven't bartended in, you know, you know, 20 years now, when I go to a bar, I have a great appreciation for a good bartender because I know how hard it is to be a good bartender. But I have no tolerance for bad bartenders <laughs> because I know it's not that hard. So I'd be curious, Michael and Bob, too, for you guys that have, you know, designed games and played in games, you know, like when you are a consumer of games, how how critical are you? So I would imagine, obviously, the appreciation is the easy part, right? So when you see something, when you see a company or designer doing something good, I would imagine your your appreciation is higher than other people because you've 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 made the sausage, you know how hard it is to put out a good product. So when you see a good product, it's great. Do you find yourself being little less tolerant of bad decisions and bad product? Honestly, for me, um, everything that I do graphically, I try to do the best that I can. And, you know, graphic is my, my old bread and butter. And, you know, as, as a great photographer and editor, um, you know, photography editor and designer. It's it's for me. It's always try to make it look as good as possible. Make as many tweaks as you can. And if I see something that to me just looks like, eh, you know, I you could have done better there. I that is one of those things that just grates me. Um, but another thing is also something that I just it, that is a is a peeve of mine. Being as someone who isn't as I guess versed as things is, is looking at something that just doesn't immediately make me um, know I know what it's talking about. Uh, if, if I see something that I have to look at and say, I just don't get it. You know, to me, that's a turnoff. And um, well, you come from a business of visual communication, right? Where, where it's communication, it's instantaneous based off of the visuals. That's literally what you do for a living. So I can imagine anything that creates any distance between the message and the visuals has got to be very frustrating because that's how you've made a living. Yeah, I can look at something almost always and just say, oh, that right there, they should have done something different yep. for, for whatever reason. Yep. Um, how about for you, Michael, though, as a game player, I'd be, I'm very interested to know... I think you understand where I'm headed, right? Oh, so, I, like, I, I know exactly where you're headed. Yeah. So, like, where where you you get madder than just a gamer would, we're more frustrated than just a gamer would because you know that a corner was cut or the testing was not as long as it should have been. Having been in the industry as long as I have, which again, in the industry means I've worked on some games, I've sold a lot of games, I've been working in game stores, you know, since 2009. Um. Now that I know how the sausage is made and I've seen behind the curtain enough, um, I, 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 I have a very high appreciation, almost a like an obsession with finding the really good things. Yeah. And I'll, I'll find the things like I'm going to I'm going to do it on Malifaux for just a second. The theme is good. The, 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 the mechanics are good. The balance is good. You know what I mean? I, it's just there's nothing I can go. They half assed this. 
like they did in Malifaux version one with Hamlin's rules, which I was vehemently would be angry about. Yep. That being said, you said uh, would get a little, you know, a little bit of uh, displeasure about certain things. I'm hypercritical of games now. It's to the point now where, and I, I do this and it irritates some of my friends, where I'll sit down with a game and I'll sit down to play them with the full intention of just enjoying a game <laughs> and not trying to, but I can't help but go, this could have been done a lot better. And being yeah. vocal about it, uh, because I have, you know, I'm a, I'm a loud guy, I'm a talkative guy. And so I'll, I'll sit down with a game and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to rag on a game for just a second. I hate Talisman. I can't stand. <laughs> You're not alone. I'm the same. I'm the, I, I think you and I are alone though, because because there's that that game has a has a cult following, and I've played it three times, and I wish I hadn't played it th- those last two times because I don't think it's a good game. <laughs> I, I've played Talisman plenty of times because I have several friends who that's all they have is like Talisman yeah. and Catan, which Catan's a fine game. I got no Catan's problem with fine. it. Yeah, it's I, there's things I would do differently. It's a good game though. It's a good game. Yeah, Talisman's such a piece of shit, and I'm gonna get some angry messages about it. But like, the in the things I'm seeing, and I'm not seeing things that I'm, I don't like. I don't dislike it for the reason that, like, you and I probably dislike it for the same ish reasons. Um, you know, just the fact that it plays clunky, the turns take yeah. forever to do for nothing. Hour. You know, you've got to wait for you got three people playing. You're waiting twenty minutes to just doing this. You know, nothing. It's all variants. It's all dice rolls. And I'm sitting here looking at it going like, man, if there were only some way to just, you know, if only, why do we have an inventory system in this game? Why do I have to have a pack mule? Why can't I have things that modify the dice rolls in any way, shape or form other than yep. O plus one? You know, stuff that's just lazy design got through with that game because we didn't know better when the game was created. Well, that's exactly what I was about to say, Michael. It's an old game, right? I oh, mean, yeah. it's an old game and people that have listened to me for a while, heard me on other podcasts know that I, that, that there's, you know, there's, there's the old way of making games. And then there's what I call modern rule systems. And, and, and what I call modern changes over time, um, you know, things that, that, um, were modern at the time, you know, aren't before, like when, uh, when games workshop put out, uh, the original Lord of the Rings game, it actually, that was a modern, a very modern, uh, rule system it was. that, that in a lot of ways took a lot of the indie ideas that were out there. And I, I hats off to the people that put together Lord of the Rings. They took a lot of indie ideas, they streamlined them and they put together at the time, what was a modern rule system. Now it's antiquated, right? Now right. it's, now it's antiquated. And, you know, you look at, you look at other games like God tier and you look at uh, Malifaux and, Guild Ball and those are modern rule systems because they they've changed over time. Talisman's just never changed. Well, that that right there is the reason that it makes me so mad yeah. is because Talisman through Fantasy Flight Games got a rebuff. They re-released the game, and instead of taking taking a team of people and sitting down like Bob and myself and you, and sitting down and going, okay, let's put a fresh new coat of paint on this. Yeah. Let's take these mechanics that are antiquated and shitty, and let's run them through the ringer and make them decent. Instead of you know doing anything like that, they were just like, nope, free money. Let's just print it off, and the cult following will chew it up because they're brainless. Instead, like 
there's a thousand better games that do it better. Uh, every game that has Lovecraft on it nowadays, uh, look at Kumani or Not's freaking stable of games. Look at our game. I, I would I would put my game up against Talisman right now and say this is more fun, right, to play. Uh, yeah, and, and I mean the one thing I will give Talisman is it inspired. I mean at the time it was a groundbreaking game. At the time that it came out, it was it was a, it was a groundbreaking concept. Yes, and it gave birth to a lot of really neat games um, that that took what was f- fun about Talisman, and that's a small thing now. Yeah, but but said you know well we can do this better. Um, but Michael, what you said about Fantasy Flight Games was such a missed opportunity because one, Fantasy Flight Games has already proven that they have access to phenomenal game designers because they have put out some good games. Oh, they. They put out some of my favorite games, but they've yeah. also canceled some of my favorite games. Oh, yeah, they've done that too. I won't um, get into that. <laughs> but um, so I agree. It was it was definitely a missed opportunity. So guys, we're going to take another quick break. When we get back from this break, I want to get um, a little bit deeper into really the the journey from A to B a little bit more. Um, so I want to step through it both from Michael's perspective and Bob's perspective because really I think that they um, they work together but saw things from different sides. So we'll be right back. Hi there, this is Owen from the Nova Open, and I am a $5 patron of Third Floor Wars because I love supporting the whole Malifaux community. I want to help Craig and the whole Third Floor Wars team continue making the fantastic content that gets me through my daily commute. You should join me in supporting the show. Just pause this episode, head to patreon.com and search Third Floor Wars, or grab the link in the show notes. See you there. I want to do a quick shout out for our all-time top patrons, Nick Westbrook, Craig Chuba, Stephen Morris, Kevin Smith, Sam Newman, James Hahn, Jeremy Peace, Ambrose Ingram, and Corinne Soles. It's because of you guys and gals that uh, we're able to do what we do. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the design process, um, which again, um, is something that I find really fascinating, but, you know, Part of the reasons, and Bob, you're an artist, and I'm a terrible artist, but art is something that I do as well. And, um, you know, you, you're never done, right? You, you can always make something a little bit better. You can always tweak this here. But at some point, you have to stop. You have to stop painting the miniature. You have to stop working on the graphic. You have to stop painting the painting and just say, this is done, and I've got to start something else. So I'd be interested to know how does that work in the context of game design? So at some point you have to say, you know what, we're, we're sending this off. We're going to send this off. It's going to get made. It's going to get printed. And it doesn't mean we can't do things to it later. But but what we've been doing for the past six months, what we've been doing for the past three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, Right now, we're saying this is a stopping point, and now we're going to send it off to the printers. I want to try to get an idea of how that decision gets made. Well, basically, what happened with me is I got sick of paying Michael every month and said, <laughs> you know what? Let's just do it. I'm, I'm done. I've seen it already. God, forget yeah. these guys. <laughs> now, we um, – graphic – well, just so you know um, – I did not create the character art. What I did was um, I've learned a long time ago that even though I probably could do everything, I won't do everything great. So, yeah. you know, that's that's originally why I hired Michael. Um, 
and I've brought in artists that do the work that, you know, that, that do character work, all the different characters I've used, um, maybe six different artists so far. This, this one game has, um, one artist that did all the characters for the no dice set, but we actually have a different artist that is drawing each of the other expansions. Um, but I basically said, okay, I can't do that. I can't, for one thing, I can't draw it nearly as well as they can. Mm-hmm. But when it came to everything else that I did, it was kind of like a, you know, I, I tried to get as many opinions as possible. Um, you know, when I, earlier I had said that I basically come up with a design that I like and then I try to tweak it. So for me, most of it was, it does, does it, does the copy and does the art look and feel good and done enough? Did I do everything that the printer needs? Do I, did I format it correctly, you know, for what the, the manufacturers need? Um, and I did a lot of that stuff while the game was still in the works. Sure. You know, Michael is still coming up with different ideas and how to do things or maybe uh, different character abilities that are going to be on the cards while I'm actually designing the box cover. So it's one of those things where it kind of goes back and forth, you know, throughout the whole process until we finally hit and say, okay, we're done here. And, and, you know, he had said he has a lot of those play testers and they go through and, and do a lot of the testing to make sure that it does work that way. When I play it, it's more of a, I either had fun or I don't get what just happened here. Why did this happen? And then what if I had a question, I would, you know, I would either send a video to Michael or just ask him, okay, I don't get why this happened or this, this kind of broke on me. How do we fix it? That's, um, that's an incredibly powerful perspective. Just so you know, Bob, uh, for Michael, I can tell you right now that having that perspective that you have is incredibly powerful. What I would like to know though, is what, what for you, and we're going to get, we're going to talk about this with Michael in a second. Can you distill down for people listening? Uh, how did you put the pencil down? What, what did you, what was the pencil down moment for you? God, I, you know, I, I I don't know if it was more of a, okay, fine, I'm sick of looking at it type of a thing. That's a factor. And actually, that you know, uh, there probably was a lot of it because if I'm not sick of looking at something, that means something I want to change. Yeah. And for me, you know, I got to the point where, okay, I don't see anything else that I really don't like. The game works well. Michael and his testers say it works well. I've had all my questions answered from, you know, from other people. What do you think about how this looks? Where should this be? What about the colors and so forth? Um, it pretty much that, 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 you know, once I had all of my questions answered and I thought, I just don't see anything else I want to fix. Then. And the, the other thing is that I also have a very short attention span. So for me, typically I would actually want to get something done sooner and I'm sick of it. And, but with this, you know, it was a it's a pet project of mine, and I did concentrate harder and wanted to work more on it. But yeah, it was pretty much that, you know, when when no one else saw any other improvements, and why I couldn't figure out what else to do. So you know, what? I think it's done. How much for you, Michael? Uh, and I would imagine there's. I mean, I want to talk about the ultimate pencils down moment, right? Where you just say we're done, we're done. But I would imagine there's also points where you f- you say things are are now frozen. So uh, you know what, this is. This part is done. I'm not going to revisit it again. I'm not going to touch it because we've messed with it for long enough. So can you walk me through, maybe let's work backwards. How do you get to that final? All right. I'm not going to mess with it anymore. This thing is going to get printed and and we're done. Like what, what causes that moment to happen? Uh, the main thing for me 
at least to get to that point, is to make sure that fundamentally looking through all the rules that I've written and looking through all the rules that Bob has written and seeing the, the pure mechanics. And this is all on paper. I'm not, my final judgment is not based on the gameplay. Uh, okay. Like I don't, I don't play one last game and go, that's it. That's the, this, this is the version I like. I know how the game plays. I've played it a billion times. Uh, my last read through of the rules is to go, okay, I don't hate this because I can always make me like it more later. Right. Uh, I can always, you know, for an expansion, do an idea I wanted to do here. And it's all purely ideas. It's not um, it's not balance issues. Those can be redacted. Those can be changed in erratas. Those can be, you know, tweaked in further expansions and stuff. It's purely going, I've got the game balanced correctly now. I've got the rule set that I like. Um, I don't hate this. Done with it. And I actually, for this particular game, I had one very final pins down moment when I was like, I think we're just done here. Um, in the sense that I, I uh, going back to testers, uh, I have a very, I, I highly value people who will test my game honestly. Yep. Um, and so I surround myself with people who have certain viewpoints. Uh, I have one friend who's a huge fan of card games and nothing else. Mm-hmm. He can't stand board games. If it has dice, he hates it. Yep. Like that's just not his style. I have a friend of mine who loves talisman. I have a friend of mine who, um, uh, is really into video games and just doesn't understand the point of owning a physical game. Mm-hmm. And I, I value each of their opinions. And once I have a game, like for this board game, for instance, I know I'm tangenting just a touch, but for this game, for instance, I, we wanted to make it for the more casual gamer, uh, not the crazy rules obsessed guy like myself or not someone who's video game prone or not the hyper competitive. We wanted this for, you know, a couple people having fun for a day. So when someone, one of my friends who's got a family who all played it and they were like, yeah, I've had a great time with it. We played a game for dinner and here's your copy back. Thanks for letting us play. I value that very yeah. highly. My pins down moment though, was when my friend who hates board games played it and he handed it back to me. He goes, this sucks. <laughs> so maybe he hated it you knew you had the right thing <laughs> well i knew because i know the games he likes and right. i wasn't making a game for him i was making right. he goes it works i hate it but it works and i'm like Perfect. that's interesting to mike so so what didn't he like about the game that told you you might have been you might be in the right spot he likes a game the specific to this one person i'm not going to call him out on it yeah that's fine um but um he likes a game that he can find some way to abuse. Um, he's a big magic, the gathering player, big and more than 40 K. He likes to be able to go. I can do this one thing and you can't stop me. Right. I can break. So it. When, I can break. So this. when he can break it, he loves to mess with rule sets like that. And so when I show him a project or I run a rule set by him and he goes, just, I'm not, I'm not a fan. I know that I've hit something that he can't intrinsically. Yeah. And so I was, I was gratified and he'd be like, well, it sucks. And he's going to know who he is if he listens to the podcast <laughs> and he's going to send me a message being like, well, it did. You know? <laughs> yeah, that's funny, but that's a good barometer. I mean, um, you know, there's there's people that I know from a gaming perspective that uh, are very good at finding the hole. Oh, They're yeah. very good at finding the shortcut. And um, I think that if you are a game designer, it's got to be very valuable to have the person who 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 comes at games from that direction oh, yeah. uh, because he, he, it's, it's he's going to he's going to expose he's going to expose the holes that are there. Uh, so yeah. that go ahead. 
Well, that's something that I do want to touch on that you're mentioning here is having the person with that perspective. I think it's vitally important, and this is, again, one of my big design concepts, to have reviewers who I know are consistent in their reviews and like testers who are consistent in the way they do things. I know my friend hates board games and he will only play them because I asked him to politely. And so if he comes to me and he goes, you know, this actually wasn't that bad. I go, okay, what video game is it like? And I go, I didn't want him to, not that I didn't want him to like this. I know it's, if it's in his wheelhouse, right. that it's probably more competitive than I want it to be. It's, it's informative. His opinion becomes informative to you from a design perspective. Right. Which is why I don't, unlike Bob, and this is something that we've, we've not come to, you know, disagreements about much, but I don't. This is going to sound really douchey. I don't value the court of public opinion that highly. Um, I don't make the posts on Facebook that says, hey, what does everybody think of my game? Because I'm going to have one guy love it, one guy hate it, one guy want to buy it, one guy want to sell it. And if you go, what do you like, red or blue? 50 are going to say red, 50 are going to say blue. All Game design can't be a democracy. It cannot be a democracy. It has to be. But there is value in going, okay. I know the kind of games this one person likes. Yep. This guy likes highly competitive, highly skill-based games. This other person is a very simple gamer, and they like very simple games and don't like complicated stuff. If he likes this game and he doesn't like this game, then I know where on my barometer that game falls. Yep. So I know consistency in the people that I'm getting because you can pay 20 bucks you know, for some YouTuber to – give you a yes man video, which is some of them are valuable. Like we've got several videos of people reviewing the game who honestly reviewed it and gave us critique and they did like it, which is awesome. But I don't want to, you know, pay 50 bucks for a guy to go like this game's great. And I highly endorse it.com buy my merch. I don't care about that opinion at all. (laughs) Well, and and having, having that stable at your disposal, Michael has got to be incredibly valuable. And I thought the, probably the most interesting thing, thing that I pulled out of what you said there was that consistency where you have you have a, a stable of people that are kind enough to help you out in this process and you you've um, you know what person A, person B, person C, you, you know their lanes and you know going into it where you'd like the game to fall in each one of those lanes and getting the feedback from them from their from their ability to be consistent reviewers to you and consistent feedback is huge. So, guys, we're going to take one more break. When we get back from this break, I want to talk about really kind of the next step. So we've talked about how we get started, where it begins, the process to get to when we finally send it off to the printers. Now I want to talk a little bit more about the business side of it. So we're going to talk about bringing the game to market. So we'll be right back. Howdy friends, here on the third floor, you'll find us playing Malifaux and other games on Mats by Mars. They are scratch-resistant, waterproof, wet erase marker compatible, and lighter than neoprene. Mats by Mars gives you over 40 designs to choose from. Pick a mat size, pick a design, then choose an overlay like the one for Marvel Crisis Protocol or Malifaux 3rd Edition. It will speed up deployment and the placement of strategy and objective markers. If you're going to Adepticon this year, be sure to check out the Mats by Mars booth. Until the end of March 2020, you can use the new promo code THIRDFLOOR320, that's THIRDFLOOR320, to get a 10% discount on your next order. 
In the notes, you can ask for the Third Floor logo to be put on your mat for free. Again, use the promo code THIRDFLOOR320 to get a 10% discount. Details are in the show notes. So, so far we've talked about um, really the the fun stuff. Um, And not to be flippant about it, but quite frankly... Uh, a lot of us have sat down and we have created games and we've printed them up on our printer and we've played them with friends. And a lot of times we can think, you know, when we, uh, you know, are talking about Malifaux that we say, boy, this is garbage and they could have done this so much better. Um, It's a whole lot different to go through the process that Bob and Michael has done, which is a concept which a million people have to actually putting in the hard work of making the hard decisions to go through the design and testing process, which a much smaller subset have, but a lot have done that as well. But what Bob and Michael now have done is they have produced a game and they put it produced a game. And they put it out on Kickstarter. So Bob, I want to kind of understand that last leg of the journey. Um, if somebody listening has never done this last step, can you talk about some of the things that you learned in that process, some of the pitfalls they should watch out for, some things that you actually liked about the process that you didn't even anticipate? Yeah, sure. It's um, Well, I have to say that I probably have a little unfair advantage that, that a lot of other people probably don't have because for 20 years or so, I actually was also in the advertising and print industry. So I know how to put files together that need to go to a printer. I, I know how to, you know, what kind of requirements they need. Um, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, what you look on a computer is 72 dots per inch, yep. the little pixels per inch, whereas a printer needs at least 300. Well, okay. The biggest problem actually was the fact that unfortunately, most games cannot be produced in the United States. Yeah, because sadly, costs are just way too high. And, you know, this game is going to be twenty five dollars. If we wanted to produce it in the United States, we would have to sell it for probably 40. Um, And it just that really stinks. Um, And but because of that, you know, we had to get it produced overseas and try to try to figure out the language barriers, the. or just the social barriers too, you know, just communicating with them. Um, when I, when I said, okay, tell me exactly what you need. This guy was just basically saying, I need you to send me the files. Okay. Well, in what format? I don't know if they do, you know, certain kind of formats. I don't know what they need. I was basically expected to draw out my whole, um, like the box. I had to come up with the box design, I had to design where the folds were going to go, how far over wow. the inks had to go on the page because you the know bleeds people, and everything. Yeah, huh? the bleeds. Um, and you know, I was expecting to go into this pure, you know, a hundred percent handheld. I was thinking it's a game company; they know what yep. they're doing. They're going to send here's me the requirements. Templates. You fill them. Yeah, yep. but you know, our 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 um our game, I guess it probably didn't. It's a it's approximately a nine by six box, but I don't know. if, they probably can't have a template for every single size that's out there. Um, so a lot of it was me having to figure out how to do all these things. And I had to go back and forth and back and forth. And with us being in separate, you know, 12, 12 hours apart. And that was a, that was a real big issue. How did you, Bob, how did you figure out who to work with? Um, well, actually, I mean, did you know um, who to go to? A lot of it was going through, uh, Asking on different groups, you know, what are some um, printers that you've worked with? 
But a lot of people, you know, you know, when you go onto Facebook or any other kind of a group, you're going to get billions of opinions. And some person may have a horrible experience with somebody, but some the next person may have, you know, saying they were the best one ever. So, yeah, it kind of had to take that stuff with a grain of salt. Um, one big thing was to uh, send over your specific requirements and get your quotes um, to figure out who was going to come in price-wise. Now, a lot of these companies actually did come very close in price in prices, which surprised me. There were a couple of them that were way out there, but most of them were pretty close to each other. So then you can kind of say, all right, well, let's get that one out. You'd have them then send um, uh, paper samples and see what kind of stuff they do. Uh, fortunately for me, I had actually become a member of the Indie Game Alliance, um, which is an organization that tries to help people as much as they can uh, try to find printers, try to find playtesters, try to find all these different things. That's great. Um, by doing that, they they referred me to this company, and they even, because I was a member of the Game Alliance, I was able to get a, a discount on the on the pricing. Nice. Um, and I, I took his advice, and I went with these guys, and when we actually came back with the finished product, um, you know, first thing I did was I brought it over to Michael and, you know, I said, you know, I want your opinion. Is this good quality stuff? You've played a lot more card games than I have. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is fantastic. You know, he showed That's me great. the whole bending trick to make sure it was good paper. If it doesn't crease and so forth. And everyone that I've shown has said, wow, this is really good quality stuff. So I was really happy with how it turned out. You know, some of the, some of the communications, they do kind of, I, it, it, it lacks a little bit, but I think a lot of it is because I think I've had the same issue with almost every country or with every country uh, company that I've dealt with. It's been the same sort of, I don't know how to deal with you because you're from another country than me. So something that's become a little bit um, commonplace and uh, a common uh, bitch thread on uh, whatever forums or Facebook you see is, is production delays, right? So every Kickstarter is going to be, you know, is delayed three months and four months. And you get the note from the creators that say, you know, this is taking longer than it, than it should have, you know, we anticipated this and this has become a roadblock and we're working our way through it. Do you have a level of appreciation for how hard that process is and, you know, how easy it is to underestimate um, how, how long it'll take for to get from point A to point B? Oh, exactly. Now you're talking about before COVID nineteen happened, right? You're just talking yeah, about yeah, yeah. Let's not even get into the fact that we're all under quarantine now. But well, yeah. When I when I first heard that it was going to take um, forty five days, you know, or they they told me that it was going to take forty five days, and I was thinking, well, you know, I I just got these cards back from another company. They they sent me three demo sets of cards for you know two days later. Well, you have to realize that these guys are printing um, a minimum of 1,500 copies, yeah. and it's not just a deck of cards. You know, they actually take this deck of cards. They then put it into a um, a folded tuck box, and to print the folded tuck box, you have to print it, cut it out, fold it, you know, assemble it, stick the cards into it. Then they take that, and they put it into a box with a bunch of other stuff. Yep. So there really is a lot of assembly required and a minimum of 15 hundred of these things plus i'm only one of however many other products they're trying to do that during sure. during the day sure. and they, they really did um that was a big issue but it's something that it's understandable the other yeah. thing was then you have shipping um 
you can you have two choices basically you can stick it on a big cargo ship and you wait another 45 days for it to ship and then it has to go through customs which sometimes may or may not be delayed fortunately mine wasn't and then you have the truck that takes it from the port down to where you're going. So there's yep. a lot of these different things. Now, the other thing is I did have prototypes done by them. And, you know, before I said, I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger on the 1500 copies. I said, let's go ahead and just send a prototype or they sent me five prototypes. They sent me the boxes with you know exactly how it looks because I wanted to send it to reviewers. And that one, they were able to not overnight it, but get it to me um, five copies Within a week, they were able to well, print these together. Yeah, and, and, and problem was though, I had to pay like five hundred dollars to get those five copies. Right. <laughs> you know, normally you're only paying like let's say five dollars a copy per, for your game, or sometimes a little more, a little less. But yeah, I had to pay a hundred dollars a copy. Yeah, which are on sale right now for two hundred dollars a piece. <laughs> <laughs> so my last question on this before we uh, kind of wrap up, Bob, is um, what what led you to decide? There's a, you know there's several different ways to put out a, a game. Um, what made you decide a you were going to self publish and b you were going to use Kickstarter? We actually kind of went back and forth between Kickstarter. What can we do to get these into people's hands to realize that this really is actually a good game with a lot of with a lot of humor and a lot of strategy. A very good game. I decided, you know, this is something that I've been doing for 25 years now. I'm just going to go ahead and self-publish it. I'm going to take some money out that I had, and I said, I'm going to use my own money and just and just make it and just do it. And then that yep. way, we people really didn't have to say, well, I don't want to pledge on, on Kickstarter for something that may you know, may come in six months later because, you know, most games, you know, people just give you an idea, then they still have to get the artist. They have to get yep. the finish the rules, finish, you know, all, everything. And I said, I wanted to have a game that I can just say, listen, you are going to like it. We're making it affordable and it's available now. As soon as the Kickstarter is done, you can get it. Let's make a, a low goal, a, um, a two week pledge on Kickstarter and make it something so that people will just want to get that they can actually still play and receive while they're at home quarantining. Sure. Um, so we added those four extra cards um, that people can get. We're getting those cards done locally. Uh, I know when these are done, they're as soon as the Kickstarter is done, if it funds, when it funds, um, these cards are going to be done within the week because I know who's doing them. They're going to be in my hands. This game is going to uh, be shipped out ASAP. Well, I, I got to tell you, when, uh, and um, I can't remember, Michael, how I came across all of this at first. I think it's, so you put it on, you and I are friends on Facebook, and I think it's where I first came across it. One of the first things I noticed was the uh, the turnaround from the closing of the Kickstarter to uh, to the you know the promised delivery. And boy, does that make it attractive. The price point makes it attractive. Um, I think a lot of people listening are going to find the mechanics and theme of this pretty attractive. So let's get into a little bit of salesman mode, Bob. Um, first of all, when is the Kickstarter? We're right now, it's uh, it's April 18th when we're recording. When is the Kickstarter open? Uh, on April 21st, in just four days or okay. three days from now. I hope you're going to have this and done by then. We, we will. <laughs> so, and, and and for those listening, um, if they are going to um, get their hands on this and pledge, uh, when does the Kickstarter close? It is a 14-day um, 
campaign. So 14 days after the 21st, um, whatever that is. It's going over a month, and I don't know how many. It's probably good that you know are. what this date is, Bob. So why don't you look it up real quick? That's going to be May 5th. May 5th, okay. So so the Kickstarter itself closes on May 5th, um, and then you're, pro- you're looking to deliver within two weeks of the 5th. Is that what I understand? Uh, yeah, uh, the game is um, already in our warehouse. Like I said, we, we've already published it. We've already manufactured it. It is sitting in the warehouse. Um, in the United States, in Georgia, so when the um, when the thing closes and we're able to get our our, our pledges in, we can say, all right, let's start shipping them out. And people so theoretically, we, we I might have because uh, I'm I'm buying the game, so I might have that in my hands by uh, early June at the latest, maybe. Cross our fingers. At the latest. Oh, at the very latest, yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Um, so uh, let's talk about the future a little bit. Let's go beyond this. So you guys talked about shelving some ideas, working on some other games. Can we talk about uh, two or three more minutes about uh, what people can look forward to from you guys? Well, actually, Michael already knows what our next game is going to be. Um, I'm a guy that owns – I have 15 parrots. Uh, most of my parrots have been rescues. And I thought, I want to do a game that's very simple that that kids and grandmothers can play with each other. And I came in with a um, – with a game called uh, Parrot Parrot, which is basically where you pair parrots together. Um, okay. And the original theme was to build a flock. Um, Michael actually came up with an idea to make it even more simple. Uh, so I actually have the deck in front of me of our prototype for this game. Uh, so Parrot Parrot is a game that we're, the next game we're going to put out, it's a dexterity-based game, uh, all about matching pairs of parrots that you pair on your board by uh, flipping pairs of parrots and letting them touch each other on the board. So you take and uh, flip a parrot card from your hand, just flip it onto the board. If it touches its same uh, a member of its flock, which you can tell by symbols and such, then you get to collect them and get points. Yeah, <laughs> okay. he's, he's actually trying to demonstrate this like he's on video. But basically, um, yeah, yeah, that you'll have a you'll have several parrots down face up on the on the table, and you have a hand. It's sort of like old maid, except instead of just saying here, there's a match. I'm just going to take it and put it down. You actually have to take one of the parrots in your hand and flip it. And let it fly down and touch one of the other parrots. So, either so it's a little bit it or, of, of trick taking card mechanic combined with dexterity. Yeah, it's, yeah, or more like old maid is why I say. Yeah, it's very very simple. You just you see cool. two macaws, you flip them, you touch them. But we also have um, another one that's going to come out right either right after that one or maybe at the same time. It's called uh, the race to stuff your face. And we kind of took the same um, characters from the Unperfect Heroes Battle Lines game. And it's something where you basically, again, it's another, what we're trying to do is since we're in this um, quarantining and the economy is, we're trying to come out with games that are going to be very affordable. These next great. You know, these next two games are going to be, um, Unperfect Heroes is 25, but Parrot Parrot and um, Racist If Your Face, those are going to be somewhere around $15 each. Wow. So they're going to be very affordable for people, but fun. Yeah, and and um, and that's what we're really trying to do right now. We're we're putting the larger games on hold, getting things out that are be very affordable and fun for people that they can play sooner than later. Yeah. And what exciting. I've also done with these other games is I've already started most of the artwork. We have most of the artwork already done. So as soon as we're able to go ahead and get that Kickstarter done, um, it's probably going to go to production within the month. 
Great. So, guys, I'm going to have a link to the uh, Kickstarter in my um, in, in my show notes. I'll also have a link to your guys' website as well um, so that people can check you guys out. Um, I, re- I do appreciate it. Um, it. I find it very valuable um, to um, learn what happens on the other side of what I consume. Um, it. Um, I am often a critic. Uh, I am not short on opinions. And... It. Um, I have learned through the process of talking to people that actually are producing the stuff that I'm consuming that some things aren't as easy as you think, um, and there's a lot of work that goes into it. Um, so I appreciate you guys sharing that. Bob, any last things that you want to make sure everybody understands? No. Okay, good. How about you, Michael? No, I, just a word of encouragement for people who are making games. Uh, do it. Make your game. Uh I, I wrote a big, long Facebook post about this in one of the game groups. Uh, if you've got an idea for a game that you love, build it, flesh it out, make it, test it, get a demo copy of it, and realize that it's going to suck. And then from there, you can start actually creating games. You know what I mean? Because, like, as we talked about this whole, you know, couple of, couple of hours now, you know, it's, it's a process. And you've got to start – you've got to pull the Band-Aid off of thinking that you're going to have the perfect thing on version one, which you're not. And Michael, that's really good advice. And I, people reach out to me all the time about starting a podcast or starting a YouTube channel. And I, and the first thing I tell them is I say, buy a camera and buy a mic. Just start, just start recording stuff. The first, the version and the first episode sucks of everything. It's going to be terrible. It's going to be terrible, but you can, you can read everything you want. You can study everything you want. Yeah. You're not going to get better by doing that. The only way you're going to improve is to start doing it. That's so I think that's correct. really good advice. Yeah, I, I did actually think of something I did want to say is, um, yeah, def- if you are trying to create a game, you know, as Michael said, do it. Try to do it. But what I would really strongly advise everybody is don't always assume that you know that your game is great. Don't be your own marketplace. Make yeah. sure that you try to test with other people, both people that you know will like it and people that you don't necessarily know will like it. And try to not do everything yourself. Try to find people that you can work with that understand your vision and that you can actually get along with. And because when you collaborate, it, you really are going to bounce things off each other and it's going to make things so much better. Bob, I think that's good advice to say, you know what, at some point, Bob, you're an artist, right? But you, you were um, smart enough, in my opinion, to be able to say, you know what, there's other people that are better than me and I can give them currency and they will produce something better than <laughs> mm-hmm. I would. My time is valuable and they probably can even produce something better, faster than I could. Um, and there's a lot of value in that. And so. that gives me a lot of time to work on the other things that I know that I am good at. Well, yeah. And not to mention the fact that you got 75 parrots in your house. So that's got to take up some time too, right? All right, guys. Uh, so thanks. Thanks to the both of you. And uh, for those of you that stuck around to the end, uh, thanks for listening. Take care. Sure to check out our shop on thirdfloorwars.com for the latest gaming apparel and gear. While you're there, check out how the USFO Tour is shaping up. How does your conference compare to the others in the United States? Where do you rank nationally? Get those models built, painted, and on the table so we can see you at the U.S. Masters Invitational in October of 2020. Also, rate and write a review on this podcast for us. It really helps us find people almost as cool as you are. Thanks for listening. Howdy friend, Craig here. Is this episode making you realize you need to buy some models? Gadzooks Gaming is my favorite online retailer because of their large selection, killer prices, and great customer service. 
Don't you hate buying an entire crew box when you only need one model? Gadzook sells crew box models individually and saves you a ton of money. They even have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada if you spend $100 or more. Swing by gadzooksgaming.com and make sure you tell them Craig from the third floor sent you. All the details are in the show notes. Howdy folks, Craig here. Now if you love gadgets as much as we do, you're going to love the new Third Floor Wars Gadget Bundle from Schooner Labs. Branded with the logo of your favorite podcast, it comes with two measuring multi-tools, a compass stepper for those tight and important movements, along with a compact dashboard to track your turn, strat, and scheme scoring along with your soul stones and pass tokens. It is the perfect bundle for anyone who plays Malifaux or just wants to look cool while doing it. The link is in the show notes. Check them out and help support your favorite gaming podcast. That's the hard part. Yeah, yeah everything else we talk about is some easy <laughs> shit, right? Yeah, this is this is leaning more towards Bob's side now. Uh, you know, no, I that's good because I'm kind of tired of hearing you, Michael. So I don't blame you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, um, hold on. My son is coming down the stairs like a rhinoceros. Okay, shush. <laughs> Close the door. He's a loud kid. Um, well, basically, what happened with me is I got sick of paying Michael every month. All right, you know what? I've got the idea. I've got the idea. I want to. I'm going to talk about when when you decide it's time to send stuff to the printers. So I'll set up the segment and we'll go from there. That'll be interesting. All right. This this next segment will be short because we ended up covering a lot of this. Um, what is in your trick? I'm trying to figure out what those little floating things are. That is hopefully ice. Uh, I didn't know what you asked me. I'm sorry. In your drink, you have little floaty oh, things? Oh, it's uh, pickled peppers. This is a martini. Oh. I was so like, <laughs> it's either really dirty ice or it's... No, no. It's uh, <laughs> little pickled pe- peppers. Huh? It's kind of like an olive, but it's a pepper instead. Yeah, it's just nuts. I don't drink, and I can't st- see why most of the people drink what they do drink, because that sounds <laughs> gross. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't drink yeah, that it's much not, it's, just, it's like a spicy <laughs> olive. Yeah, by the, by the way, I didn't mean to just shit on Talisman. I just oh no, dude, it's, it's um, you, you and I were smoking the same grass on that one. Oh, don't thank worry. God, we're gonna get someone's gonna angrily message me about their It's a classic. You're not supposed to shit on those. <laughs> Maybe I should chime in and guy. say I like I like Talisman. You know, Bob, you actually, all I know Talisman. about Talisman is what Michael's told me. That's all my, I know about that game. My only problem with it is that they had a chance to redo it. If if Talisman had only come out once, that was then, a good call. Yeah. Yep. Then I'd be like, okay, it was an old game that sucks, but it's old. It, it did its thing. Well, and, and you know who did a, a good job of this was uh, when they uh, put out Dune, the new version of Dune. Mm-hmm. They they made just a couple little changes to a. I mean, Dune is just a great freaking game. Oh yeah. Um, and they they made just a couple slight little touches and it kept it Dune, and they patched a few holes, and that's exactly what Fantasy Flight could have done. They could they could have done it with that. They could have yeah. done it with Netrunner, which I'm still salty about and will be salty so, about forever. Dude, I, I, I've I owned that game, and I've had so many people tell me what a great game it is, and I can't make it through the goddamn rulebook. I love I've it. never played I'm, it. Uh, as a, uh, I, think, yeah, I think that's a testament to the fact that 
um, I, I think that's a testament to how deeply uh, jaded I am when it comes to rules is because I look at the rule set for uh, Netrunner which is just convoluted it's like reading the Silmarillion like oh, you want to love it but it's so wordy and garbage yeah. but for me I'm just like I love every bit of that rule like I soak it up I'm like oh give it to me oh, <laughs> I mean I've I, I've, t- I've been told that it's one of the best card games that's ever been ever been made but you know and part of that is I haven't found anybody to play with but um the, my my process is I don't want someone to teach me a game. My you want to pro- learn the game. I want to learn the game and then play the game, not coming in knowing nothing. I that I, I am not a good student if I come in completely ignorant. I respect um, that. I respect yeah. that. And so the, that creates that a barrier. Is not right for you. <laughs> yeah, it creates a barrier. It creates a barrier. Yep. All right. Oh, so, yeah. guys, for this segment here, I want to get more into kind of behind the curtains. Um, and obviously, we'll still be talking about the game. But right. I, I want people to get a little bit insight into um, that process of uh, of what it is to design it. So, and Michael, if it's all right, I'm going to start with you. And I want to talk about and focus on how did you go from I want to make yet another 150 miniature RPG dungeon crawl. <laughs> To um, we're gonna we're gonna essentially make a card game that keeps score on a board, and and I, I want to kind of understand from a design perspective how you got there, uh, based on what was initially presented to you. Does that make sense? Uh, it does. Let me, uh, let's let's I guess just start at the beginning, uh, and I will you know let me start the segment. Yeah, first. we haven't started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I thought we started. <laughs> um, actually, I, a quick question. And that um, sounded so official. I apologize. <laughs> Yeah, that's tough. That's tough. So, oh, where did I lost my spot? Shit. Ah, oh, good job, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. It's We're trying. Intermission <laughs> time. Time to grab a snack. All right. Um. So next segment. Bob, based on our conversation, I'm probably going to start with Mike on this, but please, you've done a good job okay. chiming in when you did. And part of the reason I like having the webcams on is it allows me to get visual cues to know when you've got something to say. So it's good. You handled that perfectly. No, yeah, good. Very good. <laughs> yes, very good. <laughs> 